Blog Talk Radio. It's the Jenny Hatch Show at the Natural Family Blog, and I am your host. Welcome to the show today. Today's show, I'm going to talk about pregnancy and my thoughts on what the things were that were kept back from the record in the Book of Mormon that were potentially the the hidden treasures of wisdom that would have made it possible for us today to become a Zion people. What were those teachings of Jesus Christ that Mormon was told to share with us in the Book of Mormon? I have spent many years thinking about what possibly could have been taught to the people that enabled them to have a Zion society for over 200 years before they started to descend into the the madness that was depicted in the latter part of the Book of Mormon. What were the teachings? What did Jesus teach the people? These are the things I've questioned for a long, long time, and I've got several theories for what I believe he taught the people. First, I'd like to read the record. This is 3 Nephi 26, and in this portion of the Book of Mormon in 3 Nephi, um, Jesus is teaching them all sorts of things. He's restored to them the ordinances of baptism and the sacrament. He's appointed 12 apostles and taught them many things that are right here in the record. Uh, He also blessed their little children and had angels come down and minister to the children. And then um, he said and did things that cannot be recorded. We don't know everything that he did, but we know that he healed all of the sick and taught them some things that would help them to become a Zion people of one heart and one mind, no poor among them. They were just Zion. So here's ch- chapter 26 and 3 Nephi, verse 1. And now it came to pass that when Jesus had told these things, he expounded them unto the multitude, and he did expound all things unto them, both great and small. And he saith these scriptures, which ye had not with you, the Father commanded, that I should give unto you, for it was wisdom in him that they should be given unto future generations. And he did expound all things even from the beginning until the time that he should come in his glory, yea, even all things which should come upon the face of the earth, even until the elements which should melt with fervent heat and the earth should be wrapped together as a scroll and the heavens and the earth should pass away. And even unto the great and last day, when all people and all kindreds and all nations and tongues shall stand before God, judged of their works, whether they be good or whether they be evil, if they be good to the resurrection of everlasting life, and if they be evil to the resurrection of damnation, being on a parallel, the one on the one hand and the other on the other hand, according to the mercy and the justice 
and the holiness which is in Christ, who was before the world began. And now there cannot be written in this book even a hundredth part of the things which Jesus did truly teach unto the people. But behold, the place of Nephi do contain the more part of the things which he taught the people. And these things have I written, which are a lesser part of the things which he taught the people, and I have written them to the intent that they may be brought again unto this people from the Gentiles, according to the words which Jesus hath spoken. And when they shall have received this, which is expedient that they should have first to try their faith, and if it shall so be that they shall believe these things, then shall the greater things be made manifest unto them. And if it so be that they will not believe these things, then shall the greater things be withheld from them unto their condemnation. Behold, I was about to write them, all which were engraven upon the plates of Nephi. The Lord forbade it, saying, I will try the faith of my people. Therefore, I, Mormon, do write the things which have been commanded me of the Lord. And now I, Mormon, make an end of my sayings and proceed to write the things which have been commanded me. I'm not going to finish the chapter because that's enough to make my point. So we know that Jesus taught the people many, many great and important things that were not included in the Book of Mormon. And so the question is, what did he teach? What were these little pearls and nuggets of wisdom that he taught that would have enabled the people to not have such a great trial of their faith? You know, when I think about my life and the trials and temptations, that I've suffered, and the life of my husband and our children, uh, the greatest trials have been mental illness, bar none. The, the, the broken, brokenness of my brain, my husband's brain, these have been the trials that have shaken us to our very core. And as we have struggled to know how best to heal, um, it's deprived us of our financial well-being, all of the many bills that have been tied to these illnesses. It's uh, the mental illness has deprived us, deprived us of um, a feeling of confidence and assuredness that we're gonna we're gonna be able to take care of ourselves, which has been, you know, that's been my greatest desire since I first. Uh, lost my mind when I was 21. I wanted to be in a position where I could at least take care of myself and take care of my family. I didn't want to live out my days in a mental hospital or in a facility for disabled people. I didn't want to live out my days as someone who was dependent on others for my livelihood and for my necessities of life. I wanted to be in a family. I wanted to be married and have children and live as normal of of a life as I could. And I know my husband felt the same way. And yet we were two broken people who came together, not really consciously aware of all this brokenness when we married. 
And as it has manifested throughout our marriage these last 33, 34 years, again, we've been shaken to our core. Our faith has been tried because of these illnesses. And I'm 53 now. My husband's in his 60s. And I've had a lot of time to ponder of all of this distress. What was the root cause of all of this disease? all of this brokenness in him and I. Unfortunately, I've been able to figure most of it out. We, I in particular, was the victim of satanic ritual abuse starting when I was just a baby. And this abuse continued throughout my childhood and I don't know for sure that my husband was part of these circles inflicting this sort of trauma on children where he grew up. But I highly suspect that someone somewhere got their paws on him. And because survivors, victims of these sorts of crimes, tend to be attracted to each other, It would not surprise me if his level of trauma was similar to my own. So as we have healed, as I have healed especially, and I can't necessarily speak for him, my faith has been tried, and I have felt abandoned at times by my Heavenly Father, and that he just kind of left me kicked to the curb. struggling to know how to live my life. The darkest days were the days when I was hospitalized. And in my first lockup, when I was a young mother at the age of 21, I was held in that hospital for six weeks, and each day felt like a year. The time clicked by so slowly, and I had lots and lots of time to ponder and think about my life and what sort of a life I wanted to live. And I met many women who had been and out of mental hospitals for their whole lives. And, I I mean, like dozens of women. I, I didn't have anything to do while I was there except talk to the other patients. And as I talked to these other women, so many of them told me that their mental illness began when the babies started to show up in their lives. And throughout their lives, they had lost everything. They had lost their husbands and their homes and their children and were just sort of existing in these situations set up for the mentally ill. And I I thought of them back then and still today as just human wreckage. This is the side of motherhood that nobody talks about you don't really see except an occasional movie or book because the mentally ill tend to be tucked away society it's easy to forget that they're there until somebody goes postal in Walmart or something and so it's easy to think that motherhood is just you know lacy nightgowns and and plump cute babies propped up on pillows for the photo shoot. It's so easy to think that that's motherhood. 
So during those six weeks, and then I had three more hospitalizations after that first one. Again, I've crossed paths with many souls, suffering as I had suffered, and had been traumatized and trying to have a family. And I would like to share just the simplest history of childbirth in America because this isn't really talked about either. And I just want to give a quick overview. During pre-colonial days in America, there was no medical infrastructure that, you know, you could point to. There were people who had skills, and there was an occasional midwife here and there, but there really wasn't a medical infrastructure until uh, you got into the, the colonial era and doctors started to show up on the scene. So for hundreds of years, from the 1600s, 1700s, families were pretty much on their own. And because this was a new world and there wasn't the infrastructures in place like there had been in the old world, in Europe, um, the families had to pretty much depend on each other. And so it was typical for a woman in various situations to have three friends who were designated as her helpers. Um, And these women often lived in little groups of cabins that were close to each other. And these three friends would come over and stay with the woman during her labor, her birth, and then for three days postpartum and take care of the older children and cook and clean and help her during those three days. And then they would go back to their own families. And so these women had this sisterhood of understanding that it took about three days for the mom to have her uterus contract down to normal size and get her milk in and then get back to the place where she could kind of shuffle around and take care of her family. And then when the the woman across the way had her baby, three women would go and help her. And there was just this sort of understanding that this is what it took in a place where there were no doctors and no hospitals to have a baby. And when you go look at, just go back and look at your own genealogy, you know, if you're American who's been here for a while, um, and you will see that these ancestors of ours gave birth to these huge families. Uh, It was typical for most women to have 18 pregnancies, 18 to 22 pregnancies, and most of those children would live. Uh, some of them would die in accidents. Some would die if there was a famine or there was war conditions and the mom just couldn't get her hands on proper food. But in communities where the moms had access to plenty of food and water, they give birth to these huge families. Uh, a good example of this is Benjamin Franklin, who came from a family of 17 children, you know, born in the 1700s, and here's this huge family. And over in Europe especially in places like France, the women would have 18 to 22 pregnancies throughout their lives, but only two of the children would live. And this was a pattern in in old Europe. It was Thomas Jefferson himself who said, 
the average American lives like a king compared to the the peasantry in France who are starving. And he had um, a very clear understanding of what it meant to be poor, having lived in France and watched the way that the underclass was treated and had very limited access to, to food and clean water compared to uh, the, quote, peasantry of America, where people mostly lived in agricultural settings, worked to trade, lived in small villages where they took care of each other and traded and bartered with each other. So that's the history of pregnancy up until about the early 1800s. A few friends, maybe a midwife, you know, that was, the, that was how babies were born. 10, 1820-ish, doctors had shown up on the scene in Boston to the point where they were delivering babies in people's homes. And in 1820, a pamphlet was put out by a group of doctors claiming victory over the local midwives. I have a copy of this. I, I put it in one of my books. And in this pamphlet, the doctors were saying about the midwives that they were mostly uneducated, they came from countries where things weren't as clean as they were here in America and tended to bring disease with them so they didn't wash their hands and yada, yada, yada. And these doctors in Boston were claiming that they had taken the practice of midwifery away from the local midwives and calling it a good thing. And they had convinced the local population of women that the enlightened and educated upper class in their midst turned to doctors and that it was only poor women, poor immigrant women who turned to midwives. And so in that period between the revolution, kind of 1770s and the 50 years that followed up to 1820, something changed in America, at least in the East, where men entered the practice of medicine and they took over birth. And what these doctors understood is that when they were the ones to deliver a baby, a mother would often turn to them for other, other things. Uh, the kid has an accident, broken arm, let's go to the doctor. Because the mother would have bonded with the doctor during her birth and feels like, you know, he's part of the family, he's been in her home. And so the doctors looked at childbirth as being their way to corner the market on healing. If they could get a woman to come to them for birth, they had the family with everything else. And, you know, it used to be said in, uh, in America that the American farmer only had one cash cost per year everything else he could manufacture or trade for himself. But his one cash cost every year was to pay the midwife to deliver the baby. And as these doctors sought to take over, and like I said, it was mostly in the East. As pioneers moved West, um, the doctors eventually came out with them. But at first, on the frontier, 
those mothers were given birth all alone or with a few friends. And so that tradition of, of friend and family-centered birth um, was much slower out here in the West than it was back East. I personally, I'm in Colorado, and I've met people who, oh, my mom, you know, she gave birth to 10 babies out on our ranch in Colorado and never called a midwife. So, and, and this happened, you know, in the 20th century. So out here, it's not as uncommon, but back east, Boston, 1820s, the doctors had cornered the market. And they did so with the help of what are, were termed finishing schools. And these were schools where young ladies were brought in and taught all sorts of things. Um, and often in communities, these were set up by medical societies to teach young women Again, that the educated and the um, affluent in the society went to doctors to give birth, and doctors had special drugs that they could use to help them in the form of ether and special equipment in the form of forceps to help when the, the baby got stuck because they gave them too much ether. And so, you know, the whole thing started to brew around the early 1800s. Throughout the 1800s in America, Doctor-assisted home birth was the norm. Even in rural communities out west, an obstetrician would show up and start delivering the babies, would pretty much take over from the local midwives. And in some communities, there was a lot of support between the two groups, midwives and doctors. But in others, it became quite hostile as... um, the doctors started trying to shut out the midwives again to corner the market. And this is something that's not often talked about in um, childbirth circles because people assume that when, when birth migrated to the hospital in the early 40s, 1940s in America, that was when medicine took over childbirth. And it's not true. They had already been in control of it for about 120 years on the East Coast when they migrated to the hospital. So this is something to remember. Drugs, surgical birth in the form of episiotomies, scissors cutting the mom, uh, forceps, high forceps deliveries, these were happening in home birth settings for over 100 years. Now you have to ask yourself, what was the side effect of all of these managed births as compared to 100 years before, pre-colonial days when it's the mom, a few friends, she's given birth to her 18 children or 12 or 10 or whatever, with very little uh, medical assistance. And then you have these doctors showing up on the scene and we have mom flat on her back and doctor yanking out the baby with forceps while she's under a cloud of ether. What sort of an impact did that have on mothers, on their sexual life, on their willingness and ability to give birth to more children? These are the questions I think everybody needs to ask when thinking about the long-term consequences of a managed labor and birth. 
Now, what we have to say, that reality magnified so many times, so much bigger, so much more invasive, that it's almost unquantifiable. And you're able to step back and look at the whole big mess and say, okay, I can understand why some young women out there would say, no, I'm not doing that. And there are many young women who are choosing not to become mothers because they just can't, they just cannot submit themselves to the system and they understand to go it alone. They will be forever stamped with the uneducated, unenlightened hick who doesn't know any better and, you know, you're just a threat to humanity. And so they're stuck in the middle of this thing. And I don't really blame them, you know. Um, Many of us who just jumped into family life without thinking it through, you know, I got married. When you get married, you have kids. This is 1988. Um, I didn't think that my mothering was going to be shaped and contoured by mental illness and these gut-wrenching feelings of how can we, how can we possibly have another child given the circumstances? That's how we felt for years after our first daughter was born. How, how can we possibly find the courage, the strength, the finances. Right? My mental health bills were just staggering after that first hospitalization. How can we pull it together to have another child? It felt so big, this mountain in front of us. So I'm not going to relate 20th century childbirth history because we all know that history except to point out that when home birth families take a stand and say, no, we're having the babies at home, what is often flung at their heads are statistics that were taken from the early part of the 20th century in New York and Chicago, from the hospitals there, which were largely catering to underclass women because upperclass women had their own private physicians who would attend them at home. And these hospitals that catered to these um, lower-class women were largely botched home birth, meaning these women would try to give birth at home, and then when something happened, they would go over to the hospital for help. And many of these women died, their babies died. And so when people are talking about statistics, birth statistics, What's often shoved at, at, at women is the statistics that were taken from these hospitals in the early part of the 20th century. Oh, this maternal mortality rate was so high, and you know, you just cannot give birth alone. You cannot give birth at home. And it's like, well, you know, <laughs> this this is not the best statistic to use to say this is better than that a better place would be to go to a a rural community where there are very few doctors and women were living a healthy moral lifestyle, meaning they weren't prostitutes. 
Um, and one of the best places to do that is like northern Idaho during the late 1800s, mostly Mormon communities, and these women were having huge families, just like our pre-colonial ancestors, 10, 12, 15 children, all healthy, all vibrantly glowing with health. And I believe that's what every woman could accomplish if she chose to live a moral life, meaning one sexual partner, no, no venereal disease, no abortion, just a moral life with one partner and has a family, that it's possible for her to have that healthy family. So as we're thinking things through and looking at what's coming down the pike by Joseph Smith, that the day would come and the only women willing to bear children would be the women of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And as that day is fast approaching, I can see it. I can see it off in the distance. The question is, and this is the question that is the heart of all of my work. The question is, are women going to be enabled to give birth autonomously at home to their own children without anyone stepping into her private, sacred space and telling her what to do? Or are we going to have a gun held to our heads to force and compel us to go to the hospital for prenatal care, for childbirth, and for any sort of care after the birth that seems necessary for us and especially for our child? That's the question. And should mother have some sort of a postpartum emotional incident? Is she going to be supported in using something besides the drugs that are prepared for the mentally ill? Or is she going to be supported and enabled to heal using natural substances? Those are the two big questions. If we're looking at a day when the only people who are giving birth are the ones that everybody else is practicing on and making their livelihood from. And the mother herself does not have any say in any part or portion of how it goes from the pregnancy to the birth to the postpartum. We might as well just give up right now and admit we're all a bunch of freaking slaves to that system. So that's the question. As we go forward, are we as a society going to allow our daughters birth autonomously how they want without any fear of anyone coming in and messing with them, messing with their pregnancy, telling them what to do, telling them what to be? Are we going to allow them to have some freedom? Now, I know me talking about this topic just probably scares the, just scares everybody to death. The thought of young moms going through pregnancy alone, unsupported, 
giving birth alone, taking care of their babies without any outside help to you, that every woman has that spark of divinity inside of her that she can turn to and use as a source to help her through whatever trials and challenges she may be experiencing. And that it's her stewardship and her responsibility to provide for her own child. If she desires to do this autonomously, she's the one who has to have the ability to decide what part or portion of medicine she's willing to engage with. And I agree with Gloria LeMay, the famous midwife from Canada, who said, I support a woman giving birth out in a shack with a baboon as her assistant if that's what she wants. And that's how I feel too. Because the lack of the drugs and the lack of the machinations of modern childbirth are so damaging and debilitating that I believe she will do better off on her own, tuning into what her own body needs in the moment than she ever would do at the hospital with 10 different layers of professionals telling her what to do. So how does this tie in to I will try the faith of my people? Was Mormon going to say something like, hey, people of the latter days, don't go to the hospital, don't use drugs? No, I think it was a little bit more proactive than that. I believe what Jesus taught the people was how to prevent all of the many ailments in their own children. And he taught them to prevent all these maladies with good nutrition, with righteous living, with husband and wife being completely bonded together during marriage and then through the the pregnancies of their children and then dad dad being the first one to touch his child as it was being born if a couple can give birth autonomously mom dad baby the oxytocin that wraps around this family unit is so strong that it's almost impossible to break through it. And it's this that is missing for the previous 250 years in American birth. When a doctor steps in between a woman's legs, a man gets very, very territorial. And the more damage that happens to the mother's body from the forceps and the drugs and the knives and the scissors, the harder it is for a husband to reconcile that his only job in this scenario is to pay the dude who cut up his wife. That is a head trip for a man. And it is very, very difficult for them to overcome. And so, yeah, right after the babies start coming, he's going, what's my role? Sperm and a paycheck, that's it. That's it. 
I wanted to be a father. I wanted to be the one that my wife fell in love with during each birth. You remember that old notion of falling in love with the doctor? All of this loving energy that the mother's feeling during the birth should go directly onto the baby and to her husband. And that's it. This loving oxytocin energy should not be going on the midwife or her best friend. It should be squarely placed into the hands of her lover. And when that happens, there is a bond that is forged that is so powerful, it almost is unbreakable. And for the couples who are able to touch the divine by grasping that and experiencing that, guess what? You want to have more children. You want to feel that love again. And that's where you get into the 15, 16, 20 children, and you're, you're just encased in this oxytocin. And that, my vision is for the future. Each couple privately, sacredly, conceiving, gestating, and birthing their own children, completely autonomous confident, happy, upbeat, absolutely surrounded by faith in Jesus Christ. No fear. I was at a track meet for my daughter one day back in the 90s with a woman who had been a former Bradley teacher. They were childbirth teachers together in the early 90s. And she had gone on, she was a nurse, she had gone on to teach a hospital childbirth class because nobody was interested in taking natural childbirth anymore. All the young gals coming up wanted their epidurals. So she closed down her natural class and went to the hospital. And I said, well, you know, it's been a couple of years since I stopped teaching. What's changed? What's new? She said, everybody's afraid. Everybody's completely bottled up with fear. And my friends, if we had been sold, if we have been sold nothing else, average young mom has been sold, is absolute terror around the birth of her children. Absolute fear. And it is the fear that we have to overcome to enable us to get to where we can birth autonomously and safely. And how to do that? Well, on some level, it's going to take a miracle. But I believe we can get there. And I especially believe my husband and I can over, could overcome, and we're still, we're still struggling and still working on our mental health, but if the two of us could overcome our childhood traumas and the abuse in particular that I suffered and grasp our faith in Jesus Christ enough to give birth to four more children after the absolute trauma of postpartum psychosis. If we could do it, then I believe you can do it. And that is my prayer for you and my hope. And I am so grateful 
that you stopped by today to listen to the show. I'm going to take a break from blogging and podcasting now for probably a couple of months just because I feel like I need it. But I want you to know that I will be thinking about you as a young mom and praying for you that you too will be able to grasp first and foremost your own health, mental and physical, that you will be able to help your partner, your husband, your lover grasp his health. You will do the things necessary to be well and in your love create the environment where you can welcome healthy, beautiful children. That's my prayer. And I share these things with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.